0: This is Novels and Naps, Episode 8. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Novels and Naps. I'm your host, Emily. For those of you that are new here, think of this podcast as a low-maintenance book club. I read, comment, and ramble, and you just listen. And if the book or my voice are boring, you can fall asleep and I won't even know. It's a book club and a bedtime story. My plan is to read through selections from classic novels and provide you with some verbal annotations and whatever random commentary comes to mind. All of the texts that I'll be reading will be coming from the public domain because... I have a lot of student loans, lawsuits are really expensive, same old, same old. So here's your opportunity to catch up on all those classics you said that you read, but never really did. I'm hoping to wrap up our reading of Jane Eyre by episode 10, but we might be continuing to read it until episode 12. I've been doing a lot of abridging, which I will continue to do. Uh, But for now, let's recap. Last we left her, Jane and Rochester had become engaged. Jane had recently returned from visiting her aunt and her cousins, Georgiana and Eliza, after the death of her creepy cousin, John. And her aunt revealed that there actually was an uncle on her mother's side that had been interested in taking her in, but she never told her because her aunt was spiteful. Now her aunt is dead and Jane is engaged. So we're going to be jumping in with that. Um, The scene I'm going to open with is... When Jane talks to Mrs. Fairfax about her engagement to Mr. Rochester. Mrs. Fairfax is, of course, a little bit surprised because it's quite unusual that someone of Jane's station, she's a governess, so she falls within, somewhere within, like, the servant working class, is suddenly being engaged to the man of the manor. So, I'm going to jump into their conversation. I feel so astonished, she began. I hardly know what to say to you, Miss Eyre. I've surely not been dreaming, have I? "'Sometimes I fall half-asleep when I am sitting alone and fancy things that have never happened. "'It has seemed to me more than once when I have been in a doze that my dear husband, "'who died fifteen years since, has come in and sat down beside me, "'and that I have even heard him call me, by my name, Alice, as he used to do. "'Now, can you tell me whether it is actually true that Mr. Rochester has asked you to marry him? "'Don't laugh at me, but I really thought he came in here five minutes ago "'and said that in a month you would be his wife. "'He has said the same thing to me,' I replied. "'He has?' Do you believe him have you accepted him yes she looked at me bewildered i could never have thought it he is a proud man all the rochesters were proud and his father at least liked money he too has always been called careful he means to marry you he tells me so she surveyed my whole person in her eyes i read that they had there found no charm powerful enough to solve the enigma it passes me she continued but no doubt it is true since you say so How it will answer, I cannot tell. I really don't know. Equality of position and fortune is often advisable in such cases. And there are twenty years of difference in your ages. He might almost be your father. My thoughts exactly, Mrs. Fairfax. My thoughts exactly. No indeed, Mrs. Fairfax, exclaimed I, nettled. He is nothing like my father. No one who saw us together would suppose it for an instant. Mr. Rochester looks as young, and is as young, as some man at five-and-twenty. Is it really for love he is going to marry you she asked i was so hurt by her coldness and skepticism that the tears rose to my eyes i am sorry to grieve you pursued the widow but you are so young and so little acquainted with men i wish to put you on your guard it is an old saying that all is not gold that glitters and in this case i do fear that there will be something found to be different to what either you or i expect why am i a monster i said is it impossible that Mr. Rochester should have a sincere affection for me? No, you are very well, and much improved of late, and Mr. Rochester, I dare say, is fond of you. I have always noticed that you are a sort of pet of his. There are times when, for your sake, I have been a little uneasy at his marked preference, and have wished to put you on your guard. But I did not like to suggest even the possibility of wrong. I knew such an idea would shock, perhaps offend you, and you were so discreet, and so thoroughly modest and sensible. I hoped you might be trusted to protect yourself. Last night I cannot tell you what I suffered when I sought all over the house and could find you nowhere, nor the master either, and then, at twelve o'clock, saw you come in with him. Well, never mind that now, I interrupted impatiently. It is enough that all was right. I hope all will be right in the end, she said, but believe me, you cannot be too careful. Try and keep Mr. Rochester at a distance. Distrust yourself as well as him. Gentlemen in his station are not accustomed to marry their governesses. I was growing truly irritated. Happily, Adele ran in." So the four-week engagement goes by exceptionally quickly. Rochester tries to lavish her with jewels and gifts and other fancy things and it's all, it's a little bit weird because Rochester's a lot bit weird and Jane is kind of weird too. Um, but it's, it's, it's weird and I'm going to skip most of it because Honestly, it's only a few pages that they're talking about it. And I really want to jump into the more exciting elements of the story. So we're going to go back to Jane's perspective and how she's feeling about things. It was not only the hurry of preparation that made me feverish, not only the anticipation of the great change, the new life which was to commence tomorrow. Both those circumstances had their share doubtless in producing that restless, excited mood which hurried me forth at this late hour into the darkening grounds. But a third cause influenced my mind more than they. I had at heart a strange and anxious thought. Something had happened which I could not comprehend. No one knew of or had seen the event, but myself. It had taken place the preceding night. Mr. Rochester that night was absent from home, nor was he yet returned. Business had called him to a small estate of two or three farms he possessed thirty miles off. Business it was requisite he should settle in person, previous to his meditated departure from England. I waited now his return, eager to disburthen my mind, and to seek of him the solution of the enigma that perplexed me. Stay still, he comes, reader, and when I disclose my secret to him, you shall he share the confidence. I sought the orchard, driven to its shelter by the wind, which all day had blown strong and full from the south, without, however, bringing a speck of rain. Instead of subsiding as night drew on, it seemed to augment its rush and deepen its roar the trees blew steadfastly one way never writhing round and scarcely tossing back their bows once in an hour so continuous was the strain bending their branchy heads northward the clouds drifted from pole to pole fast following mass on mass no glimpse of blue sky had been visible that July day it was not without a certain wild pleasure I ran before the wind delivering my trouble of mind to the measureless air torrent thundering through space descending the laurel walk I faced the wreck of the chestnut tree it stood up black and riven the trunk split down the day's centre gasped ghastly the cloven halves were not broken from each other, for the firm base and strong roots kept them unsundered below. Though community of vitality was destroyed, the sap could flow no more. Their great bows on each side were dead, and next winter's tempest would be sure to fall one or both to earth. As yet, however, they might be said to form one tree, a ruin, but an entire ruin. You did right to hold fast to each other, I said, as if the monster splinters were living things and could hear me. I think, scathed as you look, and charred and scorched, there must be a little sense of life in you yet rising out of that adhesion at the faithful, honest roots. You will never have green leaves more. Never more see birds making nests and singing idols in your boughs. The time of pleasure and love is over with you, but you are not desolate. Each of you has a comrade to sympathize with him in his decay. As I looked up at them, the moon appeared momentarily in that part of the sky which filled their fissure. Her disc was blood-red and half overcast. She seemed to throw on me one bewildered, dreary glance, and buried herself again, instantly, in the deep drift of cloud the wind fell for a second round thornfield but far away over wood and water poured a wild melancholy wail it was sad to listen to and i ran off again here and there i strayed through the orchard gathered up the apples with which the grass around the tree which was thickly strewn. then i employed myself in dividing the ripe from the unripe i carried them into the house and put them away in the storeroom then i repaired to the library to ascertain whether the fire was lit for though summer i knew on such a gloomy evening mr rochester would like to see a cheerful hearth when he came in yes the fire had been kindled some time and burned well i placed his armchair by the chimney corner i wheeled the table near it i let down the curtain and had the candles brought in ready for lighting more restless than ever when i had completed these arrangements i could not sit still nor even remain in the house a little timepiece in the room and the old clock in the hall simultaneously struck ten how late it grows i said i will run down into the gates it is moonlight at intervals i can see a good way on the road he may be coming now and to meet him will save some minutes of suspense the wind roared high in the great trees which embowered the gates, but the road, as far as I could see, to the right hand and the left, was all still and solitary, save for the shadows of clouds crossing it at intervals as the moon looked out. It was but a long, pale line, unvaried by one moving speck. A puerile tear dimmed my eye while I looked, a tear of disappointment and impatience. Ashamed of it, I wiped it away. I lingered. The moon shut herself wholly within her chamber, and drew close her curtain of dense cloud. The night grew dark, rain came driving fast on the gale. I wish he would come, I wish he would come, I exclaimed, seized with hypochondriac foreboding. I had expected his arrival before tea, now it was dark. What could keep him? Had an accident happened? The event of last night again recurred to me. I interpreted it as a warning of disaster. I feared my hopes were too bright to be realized, and I had enjoyed so much bliss lately that I imagined my fortune had passed its meridian and must now decline. While I cannot return to the house, I thought, I cannot sit by the fireside while he is abroad in inclement weather. Better tire my limbs than strain my heart. I will go forward and meet him. I set out. I walked fast, but not far, ere I had measured a quarter of a mile. I heard the tramp of hoofs. A horseman came on, full gallop. A dog ran by his side. Away with evil presentiment. It was he. Here he was, mounted on Mesror, followed by Pilate. He saw me, for the moon had opened a blue field in the sky, and rode in it watery bright. He took his hat off and waved it round his head. I now ran to meet him. "'There!' he exclaimed, as he stretched out his hand and bent from the saddle. "'You can't do without me, that is evident. "'Step in my boot-toe, give me both hands, mount!' "'I obeyed. Joy made me agile. "'I sprang up before him, a hearty kissing I got for a welcome, "'and some boastful triumph, which I swallowed as well as I could. "'He checked himself in his exultation to demand, "'But is there anything the matter, Janet, "'that you come to meet me at such an hour? "'Is there anything wrong?' "'No, but I thought you would never come. "'I could not bear to wait in the house for you, "'especially with this rain and wind.' "'Rain and wind, indeed!' "'Yes, you are dripping like a mermaid. Pull my cloak round you, but I think you are feverish, Jane. Both your cheek and hand are burning hot. I ask again, is there anything the matter?' "'Nothing now. I am neither afraid nor unhappy.' "'Then you have been both?' "'Rather, but I'll tell you all about it by and by, sir, and I dare say you will only laugh at me for my pains. "'I'll laugh at you heartily when tomorrow is past. Till then I dare not. My prize is not certain.' This is you who have been as slippery as an eel this last month and as thorny as a briar rose i could not lay a finger anywhere but i was pricked and now i seem to have gathered up a stray lamb in my arms you wandered out of the fold to seek your shepherd did you jane i wanted you but don't boast here we are at thornfield now let me get down he landed me on the pavement as john took his horse and he followed me into the hall he told me to make haste and put something dry on and then returned to him in the library and he stopped me as i made for the staircase to exhort a promise that i would not be long "'Nor was I long. "'In five minutes I rejoined him. "'I found him at supper. "'Take a seat and bear me company, Jane, please, God. "'It is the last meal but one you will eat at Thornfield Hall for a long time.' "'I sat down near him, but told him I could not eat. "'Is it because you have the prospect of a journey before you, Jane? "'Is it the thoughts of going to London that takes away your appetite?' "'I cannot see my prospects clearly tonight, sir, "'and I hardly know what thoughts I have in my head. "'Everything in life seems unreal. "'Except me. "'I am substantial enough. "'Touch me.' "'You, sir, are the most phantom-like of all. "'You are a mere dream.' "'He held out his hand, laughing. "'Is that a dream?' said he, placing it close to my eyes. "'He had a rounded, muscular, and vigorous hand, "'as well as a long, strong arm. "'Yes, though I touch it, it is a dream,' said I, "'as I put it down from my face. "'Sir, have you finished your supper?' "'Yes, Jane.' "'I rang the bell and ordered away the tray. "'When we were again alone, I stirred the fire, "'and then took a low seat at my master's knee. "'It is near midnight,' I said.' Yes, but remember, Jane, you promised to wake with me the night before my wedding. I did, and I will keep my promise for an hour or two at least. I have no wish to go to bed. Are all your arrangements complete? All, sir. And on my part likewise, he returned, I have settled everything, and we shall leave Thornfield tomorrow within half an hour after our return from church. Very well, sir. With what an extraordinary smile you uttered that word. Very well, Jane. What a bright spot of colour you have on each cheek, and how strangely your eyes glitter. Are you well? I believe I am. Believe? What is the matter? Tell me what you feel. I could not, sir. No words could tell you what I feel. I wish this present hour would never end. Who knows with what fate the next may come, charged? This is hypochondria, Jane. You have been over-excited or over-fatigued. Do you, sir, feel calm and happy? Calm? No. But happy, to the heart's core. I looked up at him to read the signs of bliss in his face. It was ardent and flushed. Give me your confidence, Jane, he said. Relieve your mind of any weight that oppresses it, by imparting it to me. What do you fear? That I shall not prove a good husband? it is the idea farthest from my thoughts. Are you apprehensive of the new sphere you are about to enter, of the new life into which you are passing? No. You puzzle me, Jane. Your look and tone of sorrowful audacity perplex and pain me. I want an explanation. Then, sir, listen, you were from home last night? I was, I know that, and you hinted a while ago at something which had happened in my absence. Nothing probably of consequence, but in short it has disturbed you. Let me hear it. Mrs. Fairfax has said something, perhaps? Or you have overheard the servant's talk? Your sensitive self-respect has been wounded? No, sir. It struck twelve. I waited till the timepiece had concluded its silver chime, and the clock its hoarse vibrating stroke, and then I proceeded. All day yesterday I was very busy and very happy in my ceaseless bustle, for I am not, as you seem to think, troubled by any haunting fears about the new sphere, etc. I think it a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, because I love you. No, sir, don't caress me now, let me talk undisturbed yesterday i trusted well in providence and believed that events were working together for your good and mine it was a fine day if you recollect the calmness of the air and sky forbade apprehension respecting your safety or comfort on your journey i walked a little while on the pavement after tea thinking of you and i beheld you in imagination so near me i scarcely missed your actual presence i thought of the life that lay before me your life sir an existence more expansive and stirring than my own, as much more so as the depths of the sea to which the brook runs are than the shallows of its own straight channel. I wondered why moralists call this world a dreary wilderness. For me it blossomed like a rose. Just at sunset the air turned cold and the sky cloudy. I went in. Sophie called me upstairs to look at my wedding dress, which they had just brought, and under it, in the box, I found your present, the veil which in your princely extravagance you sent for from London, resolved, I suppose, since I would not have jewels to cheat me into accepting something as costly. I smiled as I unfolded it, and devised how I would tease you about your, your aristocratic tastes and your efforts to mask your plebeian bride in the attributes of a purist. I thought how I would carry down to you the square of unembroidered blonde I had myself prepared as a covering for my low-born head, and ask if that was not good enough for a woman, who could bring her husband neither fortune, beauty, nor connections. I saw plainly how you would look, and heard your impetuous republican answers and your haughty disavowal of any necessity on your part to augment your wealth, or elevate your standing by marrying either a purse or a coronet." "'How well you read me, you witch,' interposed Mr. Rochester. "'But what did you find in the veil beside its embroidery? Did you find poison, or a dagger, that you look so mournful now?' "'No, no, sir. Beside its delicacy and richness of the fabric I found nothing, save Fairfax Rochester's pride, that did not scare me, because I am used to the sight of the demon. But, sir, as it grew dark and the wind rose, it blew yesterday evening, not as it blows now, wild and high, but with a sullen moaning sound, far more eerie. I wished you were at home. I came into this room, and the sight of the empty chair and fireless hearth chilled me. For some time after I went to bed, I could not sleep. A sense of anxious excitement distressed me. The gale still rising seemed to my ear to muffle a mournful undersound, whether in the house or abroad, I could not at first tell. But it recurred, doubtful yet doleful, at every lull. At last I made out it must be some dog howling at a distance. I was glad when it ceased on sleeping i continued in dreams the idea of a dark and gusty night i continued also the wish to be with you and experienced a strange regretful consciousness of some barrier dividing us during all my first sleep i was following the windings of an unknown road total obscurity environed me rain pelted me i was burdened with the charge of a little child a very small creature too young and feeble to walk and which shivered in my cold arms and wailed piteously in my ear i thought sir that you were on the road a long way before me and I strained every nerve to overtake you, and made effort on effort to utter your name and entreat you to stop. But my movements were fettered, and my voice still died in a way inarticulate, while you, I felt, withdrew farther and farther every moment. And these dreams weigh on your spirits now, Jane, when I am close to you? Little nervous subject. Forget visionary woe, and think only of real happiness. You say you love me, Janet, yes, I will not forget that, and you cannot deny it. Those words did not die inarticulate on your lips. I heard them clear and soft. A thought too solemn perhaps but sweet as music i think it is a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you edward because i love you do you love me jane repeat it i do sir i do with my whole heart well he said after some minutes silence it is strange but that sentence has penetrated my breast painfully why i think because you said it with such an earnest religious energy and because your upward gaze at me now is the very sublime of faith truth and devotion it is too much as if some spirit were near me Look, wicked Jane, as you know well how to look, coin one of your wild, shy, provoking smiles, tell me you hate me, tease me, vex me, do anything but move me, I would rather be incensed than saddened. I will tease you and vex you to your heart's content when I have finished my tale, but hear me to the end. I thought, Jane, you had told me all, I thought I had found the source of your melancholy in a dream. I shook my head. What is there more? But I will not believe it to be anything important. I warn you of incredulity beforehand. Go on. The disquietude of his air the somewhat apprehensive impatience of his manner surprised me but i proceeded i dreamt another dream sir that thornfield hall was a dreary ruin and the retreat of bats and owls i thought that of all the stately front nothing remained but a shell-like wall very high and very fragile looking i wandered on a moonlight night through the grass-grown enclosure within here i stumbled over a marble hearth and there over a fallen fragment of cornice wrapped up in a shawl i still carried the unknown little child i might not lay it down anywhere however tired were my arms however much its weight impeded my progress i must retain it i heard the gallop of a horse at a distance on the road i was sure it was you and you were departing for many years and for a distant country i climbed the thin wall with frantic perilous haste eager to catch one glimpse of you from the top the stones rolled from under my feet the ivy branches i grasped gave way the child clung round my neck in terror and almost strangled me at last i gained the summit i saw you like a speck on a white track lessening every moment the blast blew so strong i could not stand i sat down on the narrow ledge i hushed the scared infant in my lap you turned an angle of the road i bent forward to take a last look the wall crumbled i was shaken the child rolled from my knee i lost my balance fell and woke now jane that is all all the preface sir the tale is yet to come on waking a gleam dazzled my eyes i thought oh it is daylight but i was mistaken it was only candlelight sophie i supposed had come in there was a light in the dressing table and the door of the closet where before going to bed i had hung my wedding dress and veil stood open i heard a rustling there i asked sophie what are you doing no one answered but a form emerged from the closet it took the light held it aloft and surveyed the garments pendant from the portmanteau. sophie sophie i again cried and still it was silent I had risen up in bed. I bent forward, first surprise, then bewilderment came over me, and then my blood crept cold through my veins. "Mr. Mr. Rochester, this was not Sophie, it was not Leah, it was not Mrs. Fairfax, it was not. No, I was sure of it, and am still. It was not even that strange woman, Grace Poole. It must have been one of them, interrupted my master. No, sir, I solemnly assure you to the contrary. The shape standing before me had never crossed my eyes within the precincts of Thornfield Hall before. The height, the contour, were new to me. Describe it, Jane. It seems, sir, a woman, tall and large, with thick and dark hair hanging long down her back. I know not what dress she had on. It was white and straight, but whether gown, sheet, or shroud, I cannot tell. Did you see her face? Not at first, but presently she took my veil from its place. She held it up, gazed at it long, and then she threw it over her own head and turned to the mirror. At that moment I saw the reflection of the visage, and features quite distinctly in the dark, oblong glass. And how were they?' "'fearful and ghastly to me. "'Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. "'It was a discoloured face. "'It was a savage face. "'I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes "'and the fearful blackened inflation of the lineaments. "'Ghosts are usually pale, Jane.' "'This, sir, was purple. "'The lips were swelled and dark. "'The brow furrowed, the black eyebrows widely raised "'over the bloodshot eyes. "'Shall I tell you of what it reminded me?' "'You may. "'Of the foul German spectre, the vampire.' "'Ah, what did it do?' "'Sir, it removed my veil from its gaunt head.' ranted into two parts and flinging both on the floor trampled on them afterwards it drew aside the window curtain and looked out perhaps it saw dawn approaching for taking the candle it retreated to the door just at my bedside the figure stopped the fiery eyes glared upon me she thrust up her candle close to my face and extinguished it under my eyes i was aware her lurid visage flamed over mine and i lost consciousness for the second time in my life only the second time i became insensible from terror So Rochester is generally dismissive of Jane's experience, uh, blowing it off as a dream and whatnot, but from what we gathered about Rochester, he tends to be pretty dismissive of a lot of things. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to the wedding day. I rose. There were no groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no relatives to wait for or marshal, none but Mr. Rochester and I. Mrs. Fairfax stood in the hall as we passed. I would fain have spoken to her but my hand was held by a grasp of iron i was hurried along by a stride i could hardly follow and to look at mr rochester's face was to feel that not a second of delay would be tolerated for any purpose i wonder what other bridegroom ever looked as he did so bent up to a purpose so grimly resolute or who under such steadfast brows ever revealed such flaming and flashing eyes i know not whether the day was fair or foul in descending the drive i gazed neither on sky nor earth my heart was with my eyes and both seemed migrated into mr rochester's frame i wanted to see the invisible thing on which as we went along he appeared to fasten a glance fierce and fell i waited to feel the thoughts whose force he seemed breasting and resisting at the churchyard wicket he stopped he discovered i was quite out of breath am i cruel in my love he said delay an instant lean on me jane and now i can recall the picture of the gray old house of god rising calm before me of a rook reeling around the steeple of a ruddy morning sky beyond. I remember something, too, of the green grave-mounds, and I have not forgotten either two figures of strangers straying amongst the low hillocks and reading the mementos graven on the few mossy headstones. I noticed them because, as they saw us, they passed round to the back of the church, and I doubted not they were going to enter by the side aisle door and witness the ceremony. By Mr. Rochester they were not observed. He was earnestly looking at my face, from which the blood had, I dare say, momentarily fled, for i felt my forehead dewy and my cheeks and lips cold when i rallied which i soon did he walked gently with me up the path to the porch we entered the quiet and humble temple the priest waited in his white surplice at the lowly altar the clerk beside him all was still two shadows only moved in a remote corner my conjecture had been correct the strangers had slipped in before us and they now stood by the vault of the rochesters their backs toward us viewing through the rails the old-time-stained marble tomb, where a kneeling angel guarded the remains of Damer de Rochester, slain at Marston Moor in the time of the Civil Wars and of Elizabeth, his wife. Our place was taken at the communion rails. Hearing a cautious step behind me, I glanced over my shoulder. One of the strangers, a gentleman, evidently was advancing up the chancel. The service began. The explanation of the intent of matrimony was gone through, and then the clergyman came a step further forward, and bending slightly towards Mr. Rochester, went on. I require and charge you both, as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment, when the secrets of all your heart shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment why ye may not be lawfully be joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. For be ye well assured that so many as are coupled together, otherwise than God's word doth allow, are not joined together by God, neither is their matrimony lawful. He paused, as the custom is. When is the pause after that sentence ever broken, by reply?" not, perhaps, once in a hundred years. And the clergyman, who had not lifted his eyes from his book, and had held his breath, but for a moment was proceeding. His hand was already stretched towards Mr. Rochester as his lips unclosed asked, "'Wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife?' when a distinct and near voice said, "'The marriage cannot go on. I declare the existence of an impediment!' The clergyman looked up at the speaker and stood mute, the clerk did the same mr rochester moved slightly as if an earthquake had rolled under his feet taking a firmer footing and not turning his head or eyes he said proceed profound silence fell when he had uttered that word with deep but low intonation presently mr wood said i cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted and evidence of its truth or falsehood the ceremony is quite broken off,' subjoined the voice behind us. "'I am in a condition to prove my allegation. "'An inseparable impediment to this marriage exists.' "'Mr. Rochester heard, but he did not. "'He stood stubborn and rigid, making no movement but to possess himself of my hand. "'What a hot and strong grasp he had! "'And how like quarried marble was his pale, firm, massive front at this moment, with his eyes shone, still watchful, and yet wild beneath. "'Mr. Wood seemed at a loss. "'What is the nature of the impediment?' he, he asked.' Perhaps it may be gotten over, explained away? Hardly, was the answer. I have called it insuperable, and I speak advisedly. The speaker came forward and leaned on the rails. He continued uttering each word distinctly, calmly, steadily, but not loudly. It simply consists in the existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wife now living. Ooh my nerves vibrated to those low-spoken words as they had never vibrated to thunder my blood felt their subtle violence as it had never felt frost or fire but i was collected and in no danger of swooning i looked at mr rochester i made him look at me his whole face was colourless rock. his eye was both spark and flint he disavowed nothing he seemed as if he would defy all things Without speaking, without smiling, without seeming to recognize in me a human being, he only twined my waist with his arm, and riveted me to his side. "'Who are you?' he asked of the intruder. "'My name is Briggs, a solicitor of... London.' "'And you would thrust on me a wife?' "'I would remind you of your lady's existence, sir, which the law recognizes if you do not. "'Favor me with an account of her, with her name, her parentage, her place of abode. "'Certainly.' mr briggs calmly took a paper from his pocket and read out in a sort of official nasal voice i affirm and can confirm that on the twentieth of october a date of fifteen years back edward fairfax rochester of thornfield hall in the county of blank and of ferndean manor in somethingshire england was married to my sister bertha antoinetta mason daughter of jonas mason merchant and of uh, antoinetta his wife a creole at church "'at a church in Spanish Town, Jamaica. "'The record of the marriage will be found "'in the register of that church. "'A copy of it is now in my possession, signed "'Richard Mason. "'That if a genuine document may prove "'I have been married, but it does not prove "'that the woman mentioned therein, as my wife, "'is still living.' "'She was living three months ago,' returned the lawyer. "'How do you know?' "'I have a witness to the fact whose testimony, "'even you, sir, will scarcely controvert. "'Produce him or go to hell!' "'I will produce him first. He is on the spot. "'Mr. Mason, have the goodness to step forward.' "'Mr. Rochester, on hearing the name, set his teeth. "'He experienced, too, a sort of strong, convulsive quiver. "'Near to him as I was, I felt the spasmodic movement of fury "'or despair run through his frame. "'The second stranger, who had hitherto lingered in the background, "'now drew near. "'A pale face looked over the solicitor's shoulder. "'Yes, it was Mason himself.' "'Mr. Rochester turned and glared at him. "'His eye, as I have often said, "'was a black eye. "'It had now a tawny, nay, a bloody light in its gloom. and his face flushed, olive cheek and hueless forehead received a glow. "'As from spreading, ascending heart-fire, "'and he stirred, lifted his strong arm. "'He could have struck Mason, dashed him on the church floor, "'shocked by ruthless blow, the breath from his body. "'But Mason shrank away and cried faintly, "'Good God!' "'Contempt fell cool on Mr. Rochester. "'His passion died as if a blight had shriveled it up. "'He only asked, "'What have you to say?' an inaudible reply escaped mason's white lips the devil is in it if you cannot answer distinctly i again demand what have you to say sir sir interrupted the clergyman do not forget you are in a sacred place then addressing mason he inquired gently are you aware sir whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living courage urged the lawyer speak out she is now living at thornfield hall said mason in more articulate tones i saw her there last april i am her brother at thornfield hall ejaculated the clergyman impossible i am an old resident of this neighbourhood sir and i have never heard of a mrs rochester at thornfield hall i saw a grim smile contort mr rochester's lips and he muttered no by god i took care that none should hear of it or of her under that name he mused for ten minutes he held counsel with himself he formed his resolve and announced it enough all shall bolt it out at once like a bullet from the barrel would close your book and take off your surplus john green to the clerk leave the church there will be no wedding to-day the man obeyed mr rochester continued heartily and recklessly bigamy is an ugly word i mean however to be a bigamist but fate has outmaneuvered me or providence has checked me perhaps the last i am little better than a devil at this moment and as my pastor there would tell me deserve no doubt the sternest judgments of god "'even to the quenchless fire and deathless worm. "'Gentlemen, my plan is broken up. "'What this lawyer and his client say is true, "'I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married lives. "'You say you never heard of a Mrs. Rochester "'at the house of yonder wood? "'But I dare say you have many a time inclined your ear "'to gossip about the mysterious lunatic "'kept there under watch and ward. "'Some have whispered to you that she is my bastard half-sister, "'some my cast-off mistress. "'I now inform you that she is my wife.' whom I married fifteen years ago, Bertha Mason by name, sister of this resolute parsonage, was now, with his quivering limbs and white cheeks, showing up what a stout heart men may bear. Cheer up, Dick! Never fear me! I'd almost as soon strike a woman as you. Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, idiots and maniacs through three generations. Her mother, the Creole, was both a madwoman and a drunkard, as I found out after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before. Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes. Oh, my experience has been heavenly if you only knew it. But I owe you no further explanation. Briggs, Woodmason, I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. You shall see what sort of being I was cheated into espousing and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek sympathy with something at least human.' This girl, he continued, looking at me, knew no more than you would of the disgusting secret. She thought all was fair and legal and never dreamt she was going to be entrapped into a feigned union with a defrauded wretch, already bound to a bad, mad, and embruted partner. Come, all of you, follow. Still holding me fast, he left the church. The three gentlemen came after. At the front door of the hall, we found the carriage. Take it back to the coach house, John, said Mr. Rochester coolly. It will not be wanted today at our entrance mrs fairfax adele sophie leah advanced to meet and greet us to the right about every soul cried the master away with your congratulations who wants them not i they are fifteen years too late he passed on and ascended the stairs still holding my hand and still beckoning the gentleman to follow him which they did we mounted the first staircase passed up the gallery proceeded to the third story the low black door opened by mr rochester's master key admitted us to the tapestried room with its great bed and its pictorial cabinet you know this place mason said our guide she bit and stabbed you here he lifted the hangings from the wall uncovering the second door this too he opened in a room without a window there burnt a fire guarded by a high and strong fender and a lamp suspended from the ceiling by a chain grace Poole bent over the fire apparently cooking something in a saucepan in the deep shade at the farther end of the room a figure ran backwards and forwards what it was whether beast or human being one could not at first sight tell it grovelled seemingly on all fours it snatched and growled like some strange wild animal but it was covered with clothing and a quantity of dark grizzled hair wild as a mane hid its head and face good morrow mrs pool said mr rochester how are you and how is your charge today? we're tolerable sir i thank you replied grace lifting the boiling mess carefully on to the hob "'Rather snappish, but not ragish. "'A fierce cry seemed to give the lie to her favourable report. "'The clothed hyena rose up and stood tall on its hind feet. "'Ah, sir, she sees you,' exclaimed Grace. "'You better not stay.' "'Only a few moments, Grace. "'You must allow me a few moments. "'Take care, then, sir. "'For God's sake, take care.' "'The maniac bellowed. "'She parted her shaggy locks from her visage "'and gazed wildly at her visitors. "'I recognized well that purple face, "'those bloated features.' "'Mrs. Poole advanced.' keep out of the way said mr rochester thrusting her aside she has no knife now i suppose and i'm on my guard one never knows what she has sir she is so cunning it is not in mortal discretion to fathom her craft we had better leave her whispered mason go to the devil was his brother-in-law's recommendation where cried grace the three gentlemen retreated simultaneously mr rochester flung me behind him the lunatic sprang and grappled his throat viciously and laid her teeth to his cheeks they struggled she was a big woman in stature almost equaling her husband and corpulent besides she showed viral force in the contest and more than once she almost throttled him athletic as he was he could have settled her with a well planted blow but he would not strike he would only wrestle at last he mastered her arms grace pool gave him a cord and he pinioned them behind her with more rope which was at hand he bound her to a chair the operation was performed amidst the fiercest yells and the most convulsive plunges mr rochester then turned to the spectators he looked at them with a smile both acrid and desolate that is my wife said he such is the sole conjugal embrace i am ever to know such are the endearments which are to solace my leisure hours and this is what i wish to have laying his hand on my shoulder this young girl who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell looking collectedly at the gambles of a demon i wanted her just as a change after that fierce wrack out Wood and Briggs looked at the difference. Compare these clear eyes with the red balls yonder, this face with that mask, this form with that bulk. Then judge me, priest of the gospel and man of the law, and remember with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Off with you now, I must shut up my prize. We all withdrew. Mr. Rochester stayed a moment behind us to give some further order to Grace Poole. The solicitor addressed me as he descended the stair. You, madam, said he, are cleared from all blame. Your uncle will be glad to hear it if indeed he should still be living when mr mason returns to madeira my uncle what of him do you know him mr mason does mr Eyre has been the funcle correspondent of his house for some years when your uncle received your letter intimating the contemplated union between yourself and mr rochester mr mason who is staying at madeira to recruit his health, on his way back to jamaica happened to be with him mr Eyre mentioned the intelligence for he knew that my client there was acquainted with a gentleman of the name of rochester mr mason astonished and distressed as you may suppose revealed the real state of matters your uncle i am sorry to say is now on a sick-bed from which considering the nature of his disease decline and the stage it has reached it is unlikely he will ever rise he could not then hasten to england himself to extricate you from the snare into which you had fallen but he implored mr mason to lose no time in taking steps to prevent the false marriage he referred him to me for assistance i used all dispatch and am thankful i was not too late as you doubtless must be also were I not morally certain that your uncle will be dead ere you reach Madeira, I would advise you to accompany Mr. Mason back. But as it is, I think you had better remain in England till so you can hear further, either from or of Mr. Eyre. Have we anything else to stay for? he inquired of Mr. Mason. No, no. Let us be gone, was the anxious reply, and without waiting to take leave of Mr. Rochester, they made their exit at the hall door. The clergyman stayed to exchange a few sentences either of admonition or reproof with his haughty parishioner. This duty done, he too departed. So that is our big reveal (laughs) about the truth of Mr. Rochester. He is already married, and yeah, turns out not not the best marriage. But yeah, yeah, so there are are some flaws with him as I was insinuating throughout the entire story ever since she met him, he is kind of an immense liar on many, many levels. And I don't feel super sympathetic towards him because I just, I guess I'm just not a very caring person. Anyway, that, my friends, is where we will leave it. So thank you for listening, friends, and sleep well.